0: For a little foolishness, to 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians 11. As I mentioned last time uh, we studied 2 Corinthians, in chapter 10, we encounter something of a turning point. Uh, of course, Paul has been uh, trying to restore his relationship with the church in Corinth. Uh, much of the letter has been very conciliatory. Of course, for several chapters, uh, he, had, he had spoken of this offering that he wanted them to participate in and uh, help to relieve the suffering of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. And when we come to chapter 10, uh, Paul, in a sense, takes the gloves off. Uh, it becomes somewhat more confrontational. Because Paul is beginning to turn his sights on those who were troubling the church, those who were feeding the opposition to him in the church in Corinth, and so uh, has some pretty strong things to say. Uh, Kent Hughes, in his book on 2 Corinthians, tells a story about a preacher named Van Cortone, uh, apparently a court preacher in, in Paris, although he was of Dutch descent. I have no way to verify the accuracy of this or not, but um, one could well imagine it taking place, and it may well have. Uh, But this preacher, Van Cortone, was invited by the uh, uh, government officials in The Hague, in the Netherlands, to come and preach for them in their state church chapel. And Cortone, sensing that their interest was more social than spiritual, uh, declined. Well, the invitation was repeated a couple more times, and so finally he agreed to come, but uh, with the condition that they, they, they actually attend, that all the government officials be present in the chapel for this officially sanctioned service. Well, Cortone appears, and he preached on the Ethiopian uh, from Acts chapter 8. You know, Philip and the Ethiopian, who was uh, traveling and reading Isaiah and trying to understand it, and Philip had the opportunity to, opportunity to explain it. Well, his sermon apparently had four points. Number one was a government official who read his Bible, something rare. Point number two, a government official who acknowledged his ignorance, something rarer still. Point number three, a government official who asked a lesser person for instruction, something exceedingly rare. And then finally, point number four, a government official who was converted, the rarest of all. He was not invited back. Well, sometimes uh, preachers have to say some tough things, and if they're biblical, they're saying those things in love and saying those things out of of a regard for those who hear them. Uh, Parents are sometimes in the same position of having to speak to their children and say some things that are that are pretty hard, but if they are good parents and certainly if they're godly Christian parents, they are saying those things not to inflict hurt, uh, not out of a malicious spirit, but out of a desire for the well-being of their children. And certainly for Paul, he fulfilled both roles. Where the Corinthian church was concerned, he was certainly to them a preacher who had to say some pretty blunt things, but all for the well-being of the church. But for Paul, he also, as comes through in this passage, uh, sees his relationship with the church in Corinth as more paternal than that. He was the one who planted this church. This was his baby, in a sense. Uh, Certainly the church belonged to Christ. But Paul felt a special relation to this church, as a parent might, to a child. And that comes through in this passage. And Paul says some things that are pretty strong here. But as he makes plain, he says these things because he is concerned for the health, the well being, and indeed the very existence of this church and the continuation of the gospel in this church. Now, part of Paul's efforts here have to do with defending himself because he recognized that the boasting of these intruders who had come in uh, had caught the ear of the church in Corinth. They were beginning to listen to these things they were saying. And Paul recognized that he had to reestablish his own credibility with them, his own apostolic uh, authority. And so he's already talked some about the ill-advised boasting of these false teachers who would come in, and uh, in chapter 10, ends by saying that, you know, that we should not boast in ourselves, but we should boast in the Lord. Quoting from Jeremiah, chapter, uh, in verse 17, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is very loath to commend himself. But he realizes that he needs to do it. His opponents have made such inroads. Their deadly teaching has gained a hearing. And Paul needs to get their attention. And so he begins to speak about himself. He calls it, in verse 1, foolishness. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Uh, In fact, he, he later calls it madness, the kinds of things he's saying about himself. The fact is, however, they're absolutely true. There's no embellishment. What Paul says about himself is true, and we're glad that he did. We're glad that he engaged in this foolishness because it gives us an understanding of Paul and a glimpse into his life and to things that happened in his life that we might otherwise not have. But before he really gets into uh, boasting about himself uh, and who he is and what God has done, this foolishness as he calls it, he needs to defend it. And really that's what he does in these first 15 verses that we're going to be looking at. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. Thank you for this passage we've read tonight. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Paul says to please bear with me in this foolish, distasteful exercise, uh, he's basically saying, allow me to be foolish so I can expose the foolishness of my opponents. He basically gives three reasons for this, this boasting, this foolishness in which he was engaged. First of all, Paul indulged himself in this boasting. It's justified because of the clear and present danger to the church in Corinth. And make no mistake about it, this was a church with a lot of problems, and a church that, uh, because of particular problems, was in peril. Well, look at what Paul says after asking them to bear with him in, the, in this, this foolishness of his own boasting. He begins by speaking to them of his concern as a father, as a jealous father. Look at verse 2. I feel, he says, a divine jealousy for you. We say, well, that's bad. You shouldn't be jealous, right? Wrong. The scriptures describe God as jealous. Now, we should not be jealous of the wrong things. We shouldn't be jealous of another's good providence, God's blessing in his life. Uh, We should not be envious of the possessions or the gifts of others. But there are things we should be jealous for. A husband should be jealous for the affections of his wife. A wife should certainly be jealous for the loyalty and love of her husband God is jealous for us, his people, that we should be faithful to him. And Paul is jealous for this congregation in Corinth, the work certainly of the Spirit of God, but the work of his own efforts. And he's jealous for this reason. He says, I feel a divine jealousy, the kind of jealousy God feels for his own people. For I betrothed you to one husband. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul came out of a culture in which arranged marriages were common, in which uh, a father might uh, arrange for his daughter to be betrothed to a suitable man. And if her affections go astray from that man, the husband or the father, rather, might be very jealous for her that uh, she truly be for that husband to, to which he has betrothed her. And Paul is kind of seeing himself in that position as the human father of this church. And he says, I betrothed you to one husband. I, 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 it is my desire to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, to present you to Christ. But, he says in verse 3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul is saying to the church, I intended you for Christ. I intended you to know him in the pure gospel of Christ and to be faithful to the Christ of Scripture, to the the Christ as he's portrayed in the Old Testament, to Christ as he's portrayed in, in the apostles' own teaching. But the problem is an interloper has appeared on the scene. And Paul makes this reference back to the Garden of Eden. They were Adam and Eve, created to know God, created to obey God, created to be in relationship with God. (laughs) And then there's this serpent who shows up. And what does he do? He begins to lure their affection, lure their devotion away from God to himself, questioning God's word and then contradicting God's word. And basically, being a con man, winning their confidence for himself. And that's what Paul says is going on here. Just as the serpent came and, through its cunning, through its slyness, deceived Eve and deceived Adam and led them away from the Lord, Paul says, I'm afraid the same thing's happening here. That you're being led astray, your thoughts, he says, will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul is jealous for this church. They weren't meant for someone else. They were meant for Christ. And he's concerned that their affections are being won away from Christ, at least from the biblical Christ, to following strange ideas. Their thoughts, which is where it begins, being led away. That's what the serpent did with Eve. Planted a thought in her mind. Did God really say? God, God is wrong. To begin to question God in her thoughts, and that, of course, led to her actions. Well, that's what he's saying here. I'm afraid that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, Paul kind of focuses on the interlopers, on these intruders who have come in and are endangering the church, in danger of leading her astray. Verse 4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, it's not that they don't you know, said you don't need Jesus. They proclaim what Paul describes as another Jesus. It's interesting that our, uh, our membership vows, PCA membership vows, said do you rest and receive Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. Why is that phrase there? Why can't it just be do you, do you receive and rest upon Christ alone? It, it includes that phrase as he is offered in the gospel. Because what the vow is saying is not, do you rest and trust in some Jesus of your own devising, of your own imagining, but are you trusting in the Christ of Scripture? Are you trusting in Christ as He's revealed to us in God's Word? You know, there's no place for this, well, I like to think of God as, or, you know, I like to think of Jesus as, well, what you like to think of Him as is immaterial. The question is, how is He revealed in Scripture? Who is the Christ of Scripture? Who is the God of scripture. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, a Jesus who's okay with your sin. A Jesus who thinks homosexuality is is perfectly is a perfectly legitimate expression of, of human love and affection. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, then the one we proclaim, the apostolic preaching of the cross, or Paul says, if you receive a different spirit from the one you receive, the Holy Spirit of God, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. Different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Now, do those words sound familiar? A Different gospel. Where have we heard those words? In an earlier letter of Paul's. Anybody? If someone comes preaching a different gospel, let him be accursed. Anathema. Galatians chapter 1. Just a page or two over as it is in the... In our Bibles, uh, Galatians was earlier. Yeah, Paul says in, in very strong terms, Galatians 1 verse 6, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. So we said before, so now I say again: If anyone is preaching to you a, con- a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Well, that's in essence what Paul is saying here—the same language, different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel—not the not the biblical one, not the apostolic one. He says, if this happens, you put up with it readily enough. No different, really, than many churches over the. Uh, over, over the years, including over the last decades. Uh, churches who tolerated someone preaching a different Jesus. Churches who tolerated someone preaching a different spirit. Ter- churches that tolerated someone preaching a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And as long as they don't change the order of worship, everything's okay. Uh, you know, as long as they uh, don't uh, paint the church the wrong color, they can preach whatever heresy they want. Sadly, there are churches that have no more discernment than that. Uh, will fight over all the wrong things. will not fight for the right things. And Paul says of the church in Corinth, you put up with it readily enough. Yeah, so, so they're smooth talkers. So they're entertaining. So they've got polish. Uh, you put up with it readily enough when they come preaching a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Look at verse 5. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super-apostles, a term that Paul sort of makes up. Uh, some have suggested that Paul is comparing himself to the other apostles like Peter and James and John. I don't see how you can say that in context, uh, although certainly if that's who he had in mind, we would agree with him. Paul's not inferior to them. But in the context, rather, the term drips with contempt, with sarcasm. As Paul says, fine, you know, you want to follow these people because you think they're something. Well, I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles who commend themselves and seem to be uh, really something special. Verse 6, even if I am unskilled in speaking, which again apparently seems to be some of the thing that was going around. I remember his letters are, are, are weighty and impressive, but in person he's nothing back in chapter 10. Well, Paul says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we've made this plain to you in all things. It was interesting to note among the Puritans, many of whom were, uh, their leaders were were highly, highly educated in places like Cambridge and Oxford, often uh, some of them held positions uh, in those schools, uh, that the the Puritans uh, began to get away from the accepted form of preaching which was very polished, uh, very uh, literary, often uh, various literary allusions, uh, displaying one's learning, showing off the fact one's done one's homework. And the Puritans began to get away from that and to preach in what they called the plain style, which basically read the text, uh, explained the text in its context, and came up with a statement of truth. Which was then defended or supported or explained or illustrated from wherever they could draw from the rest of Scripture. And it was um, lacking in large words, it was lacking in literary polish, it was lacking in citation of scholarly writings. And uh, many among the elite, the leaders, the scholarly community uh, looked down on them for that reason. Uh, but they had more important concerns than to display their learning and abilities, and that was to make clear, make plain the gospel of Christ and the teaching of Scripture. Now, Paul isn't necessarily saying he's not a skilled speaker. Paul, I'm sure, could uh, exercise the accepted oratory of the day if he so chose. But Paul, like those Puritans, was more concerned with making plain the gospel of Christ than he was impressing people with his knowledge, with his skills. And he says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. He may have been preaching in what the Puritans would call the plain style, but it was full of solid biblical meat, knowledge, teaching. And Paul says, indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. Paul's not lacking in knowledge, even if they didn't like the way that he communicated the truth. To them, remember earlier in First Corinthians. In fact, uh, right after the passage that uh, we read in the service this morning, First Corinthians, Paul later goes on to say in chapter two, "We resolve to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified." Well, that's Paul's first reason for this this boasting is because of the danger to the church. They're being led astray, and 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 it's even worse in their preference for these false teachers over Paul. And so Paul engages in this foolishness in order to bolster his credentials with them. Well, he goes on. There's another reason. He thinks that this foolish boasting is justified. He'd rather not do it, but he thinks it necessary. And another reason is because of the benevolence that he showed them. Because of the benevolence that he showed them. Look at verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Amen. <laughs> does it get much more sarcastic than that. Did I sin against you by not requiring your support? Well, we would say, of course not. The obvious answer is no. I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. In fact, Paul goes on, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Now, Paul's obviously not uh, confessing that he's guilty of violating the Eighth Commandment here. When he says robbing churches, he's just speaking in a sarcastic way. He was supported by other churches, those who uh, were supporting him, much as we would support missionaries today to uh, be able to do the work that God's called them to do. And uh, Paul made a great point of the fact that he did not accept money from the Corinthian church, uh, not the least of which was because that countered charges against him that we've seen in Second Corinthians that he was out for whatever he could get from the Corinthian church. There were those bringing these accusations against Paul that he was using them for his own gain. And Paul makes it as plain as he could that uh, he ministered to them without uh, accepting support from them, but rather from other churches to serve them. And he says in verse 9, When I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And here he kind of names names a little bit. Uh... There were others who provided for Paul. So I refrained, and he says, will refrain from burdening you in any way. Not only does he say, I never accepted support from you, I can't bring that up against me, but I won't. Not in the future. I will not. I will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. Paul's saying, you think, you know, I don't want your money, I don't care about you, I don't care for you, that's why I want not accept support from you. He says, you know that I do. God knows that I do. Because I do not love you, well, God knows his heart. God, and here's Paul in effect just, you know, saying, because I love you, because I'm concerned for you, because I want your well-being. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, They work on the same terms as we do. They would liken themselves to Paul. Got the same calling as Paul. Worked the same way as Paul. Uh, Paul was entitled to the support of the Corinthian church. And all the more so because he was, for the congregation, their spiritual father. And for many of them individually as believers, their spiritual father. But he refrained from that. Because he did not want any grounds for the accusations that he was only using them. And because it helped to undermine the claims of those who were troubling the church and those who were trying to usurp Paul's place as an apostle of Christ. Well, that's the second uh, reason that Paul gives for his boasting, because of his benevolence toward this congregation. But there's a third reason that he goes on, and these are probably some of the strongest words that you'll you'll hear from Paul. Uh, we saw some in Galatians one. If anyone's preaching a different gospel, let him be accursed. Well, uh, some very strong words here also. Paul's boasting in in, in himself is justified uh, in this case because of the deceptiveness of these false apostles. Look at verse 13. He speaks of those who claim to work on the same terms as Paul, and we, being the other apostles I would assume, do. He says, for such men are false apostles, pseudo-apostles. They are false apostles. They are deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Three times Paul emphasizes the spurious nature of these men. False apostles. They claim to be apostles. They claim to work on the same terms as the other apostles, and yet Paul says they're false. They're wrong. Now that's not to say that only apostles could do the work of ministry. But only the apostles could claim that level of authority. There were plenty of others we read about who did great works of ministry. As we mentioned earlier, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip was not an apostle. Uh, he was a deacon, a male one at that. But how, Paul, uh, how, how God used Philip to, to reach him and others that we read about in the book of Acts and certainly even others who wrote books of the New Testament. Luke was not an apostle. He was a companion of Paul in his journeys, uh, but he wasn't an apostle. So, Paul's certainly not saying you have to be an apostle to do ministry. Well, not at all. But he is saying that these people are claiming equal status with the apostles in order to undermine the teaching of the apostles. They're false apostles. He calls them deceitful workmen. Deceitful workmen. Uh, I enjoy reading, and I'm actually reading back through, Patrick O'Brien's uh, series, uh, the uh, Jack Aubrey, Stephen Maturin series, uh, probably best known through the movie Master and Commander, which is the title of the first book in the series. And in the second book, uh, Jack Aubrey has a ship, and it's it's a strange ship. It was kind of an experimental ship. And uh, he managed to uh, get command of this ship in a time when commands were for captains or um, masters and commanders in the in the British Navy were hard to come by, but it was a strange ship, but as hard as his assignment was to get, and you'd much rather be at sea than on land, he took this ship. Well, as it turns out, this ship was built in a shipyard that was suspect, and the ship seemed to be okay at first. but then the uh, carpenter comes up later uh, and and presents to Aubrey to captain aubrey a uh, a bolt that is just a partial bolt, and it turns out that the shipyard, in an effort to save expense, had not put run a bolt all the way through the wood. There was just basically a bolt stuck in one side and a bolt stuck in the other that never met in the middle. It was just uh, it was an appearance of a bolt, but there was no bolt that went through the wood holding everything together. Of course, the danger with this is when the hull is stressed, it begins to come apart, which is bad news. Uh, a ship built by deceitful workmen. It looks plausible, but under testing it proves to be weak and inadequate. Those are deceitful workmen. Uh, maybe you've had experience with deceitful workmen on your car or on your house uh, who appear to have done the job and yet it's highly inadequate. Well, that's what Paul says of these false apostles. They are deceitful workmen. They're tricking you. They're ripping you off disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Like someone out on Halloween in a costume, they are not what they appear to be. They are disguising themselves as apostles, but in fact, by by virtue of the definition of the word disguising, they're not. They only look like it. They may appear to be, present themselves as as an apostle, but they're not. And then Paul goes on to say, no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself. As an angel of light. Now, Paul is being pretty strong here because he's actually connecting them with Satan. Now, we've seen in Matthew how uh, how enemies of Christ uh, put him or tried to attribute uh, Christ and His power to the work of the devil. Where Paul here says that these false apostles are actually. In league with the devil. They are simply doing as their leader does. For no wonder, he says, even Satan disguised himself, disguises himself as an angel of light. For Satan is the arch deceiver. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 8, speaking of Satan, says of him in verse 44, He says, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He disguises himself as an angel of light. One person put it this way. He said, When Satan is at work, we'll never smell sulfur or glance down at a cloven hoof. Rather, he is sweetness and a congenial, smiling light, until he has control. Verse 15, so it's no surprise if his servants, his Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So Paul calls them like he sees them. These are false apostles, these are deceitful workmen. They're disguising themselves as apostles, but they're servants of Satan. They may dress up like Satan as an angel of light, but they are only spreading darkness. They may come as messengers of truth, but they're only promulgating lies. And Paul concludes, their end will correspond to their deeds. These people who are troubling you are not bound for heaven. They're bound for hell. They're not serving God. They're serving the devil. And dear friends, what Paul says to the church uh, is certainly true uh, to the church today as well. We need to be discerning. We need to know the Scriptures so we'll know error when we hear it. You know, it's useful to to study the teachings of various cults, but it's far more useful to study the teaching of the Scriptures so that knowing the reality, you could spot the counterfeit, So that seeing the real thing, you can spot the imitations when they show up. All too often, too many Christians are easily deceived because they don't know the Scriptures. They don't know the truth. Well, as Paul begins to defend himself, to boast a little bit in himself, this foolishness as he calls it. He warns the church of its spiritual danger. He's jealous for them. They're going after another bridegroom than the one to whom they were betrothed. And he reminds them of his, uh, his sacrifice uh, in, his, in, in serving them at no cost to themselves. But mainly he reminds them uh, of, the, of the real nature of these people who are among them. They're not well-intentioned. They're not even just misguided. They're the agents of Satan. And the real Christians and the true church needs to be on guard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And sadly, Lord, we see how too many churches and even denominations have been led astray by those who present themselves as messengers of your truth and yet are anything but. Father, we pray that you would give us discernment. We pray that you would uh, give us the knowledge of your word that we need and a sensitivity to the truth and a sensitivity to that which is wrong, to that which is not right. Lord, if nothing more than an uneasy feeling in the presence of what is wrong. Most of all, Father, we pray that you would protect your church, protect this congregation, protect our families, protect our denomination, protect your true church, Lord, in this country and around the world. Lord, may we be grounded in your word and prepared to stand for what is true. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.